Shut up and sit down. Welcome to another episode of the Superhero Movie Club, a community of superhero movie fans. All nerds, welcome, but please wipe your feet at the door. I'm your comic book cultured host, Michael Maurer, joined today by the movie maestro, James Skyler Houtsma, and the scientific scholar, Ben Anderson. SHMC is your premier movie discussion podcast. Every week, we continue our journey exploring our favorite subject, superhero movies. Every fan sees the movies differently, so we gather some amateur experts to discuss certain aspects of the movie. Whether it's money, comic books, music, or science, SHMC talks about it all in this week's episode. Thank you for the coffee, ma'am. It's not too often that you rob a place and they get welcome back. Because we just robbed you. You know that he was arrested for stealing a smoothie machine, right? Two smoothie machines. Are you sure they can handle this? Oh, we can handle it. We're professionals. You'll forgive us if uh, we're not instilled with confidence. Well, hey, everybody, just kick back and relax a little bit, man. We know our business. We broke into this spooky-ass house, didn't we? I let you. Well, one could say that I let you let me. Look, it's okay. They can handle this. Yeah, we can handle it. You got their credentials? He's in the system. I'm in the system. You're in the system. The system? Yeah, we're doomed. Ant-Man. And yes... There will be spoilers. Perfect. All right. So let's talk about some first opinions. And I'm going to start with me this time in that Ant-Man is a very solid blockbuster film. Uh, it, it hits all the points. It entertains. It, it, it is, I'd say it's certainly your money's worth. It, you laugh. There's enough uh, decent action in it. The plot is, is easy enough to follow where you're not getting mad at it. But uh, for those reasons, it also, also hinders the quality of the film because Ant-Man is the Marvel Studios method through and through. You've got you've got your your protagonist who's got some some emotional connection to some other characters and it's it's not very poignant. There's not a whole lot of risk. There's a lot of um of of jerky comedy where they just a lot of snarkiness where they just sort of fit comedic moments here and there. Um and the and of course above all the villain is is not even like a character and is just a MacGuffin. It, the villain is like Darren Cross, Yellow Jacket. I could not get a feel for what this guy like. He had he had mentorship issues with Hank Pym. That much is obvious. But the the steps he was taking, it was just like he was a murderer, and he was just ruthless. And it didn't feel like Hank Pym burned him that bad. And we didn't get a sense of where. All of this hatred and and cruelty really spawned from. So you got a very one-dimensional character who's just there to conflict with the hero at the end, and it's really disappointing to see that um, in a superhero movie so frequently. Because that's it. Just seems like when you say how many good Marvel villains are there, and there's currently what 10, 12 <laughs> Marvel Studios films out right now. I'd only say like two or three villains were actually even like cool or I don't know, filled out. So what do you, what do you think, Skylar? Uh, unfortunately, I'm going to reiterate a lot of what you said in that uh, uh, Ant-Man is neither the best Marvel movie or the worst movie. It is, in fact, just solid. Uh, you pretty much know what you're getting at this point. Uh, you get a lot of fun, zippy action, uh, big focus on comedy, villain that falls flat on their face, a few satisfying aspects to it, at least one thing that's going to annoy you to no end. But I think the strength of this movie lies in how, for the most part, you know, with a couple exceptions, it's more standalone. It doesn't fall back so often on the fact that, oh, hey, this is a Marvel movie in the Marvel universe. has those moments, but it that isn't the point of it. And I think they really uh, drove home the fun aspects of the Ant-Man 
shrinking technology, the power, and for a character that's, you know, is kind of obscure, I think they sold the concept pretty well. And what do you think, Ben? <sighs> Where do I start? This movie, watching this movie was like listening to a Katy Perry song because it's fun. I had a lot of fun seeing this movie, but afterwards I was like, that was really bad. Oh. And like, like in, in the sense that it is so transparently manufactured to appeal to as wide a variety of people as possible. And I felt like Marvel Studios, like they do that. They're there to make money. And like, and like to some extent, they they make their like that's part of the Marvel Studios method is to make their films appeal to everybody. But it felt like in Ant Man, they didn't care how transparent that was. Yeah, yeah, I'd see that. I mean, when because I think we mentioned this uh, uh, before in that like it used to be very very subtle that all the Marvel universe was connected. And in this one. All out of nowhere, Falcon shows up. He's like Jay-Z in Beyonce's Drunken Love, right? <laughs> he just shows up out of nowhere, raps a verse, and you're like, why are you here? Except just to remind us that you're married to Beyonce. You know, why, why is Falcon there except to remind us that, uh, you know, Civil War slash whatever comes after that is coming out next summer? Yeah, I know. A lot of a lot of the Marvel movies now have sections devoted to promoting the next movie within the movie. And it's getting it's getting a little bit too much. Some but movies I, are completely devoted to that. <laughs> yes. Amazing Spider-Man 2. Uh that also. <laughs> uh but the the thing I want to say about the transparency is even though Marvel Studios has this great brand worth right now like you see that logo and you know that you're getting your money's worth i'd say i'd say they achieved that with their viewership but the thing is ant-man is, is still kind of a tough sell you've got a guy who, who who shrinks and talks to ants you know if five years ago hell three years ago maybe even two people would be like that's an absurd concept i don't think i would be entertained by that at all there's nothing exciting about that until you get there and you realize, like, shrunken world is pretty cool. I think it's a little more understandable when you look at the path this movie came to being created when Edgar Wright was going to do it. Obviously, something happened there. He departed. And we had a movie that, you know, was going to be shepherded by him. But pretty late in the game, the whole creative process just went, uh, you know, balls up. And it's pretty understandable with keeping that in mind that Marvel went with a film that was pretty much by the numbers a Marvel movie, quote unquote. It was a safe bet film. And I know we're, we're kind of egging on them because we know they have the resources and the talent to do better is the thing. Is to is to continue growing as a company and <laughs> continue uh, appealing to our interests. Um, but but how much did it appeal to everyone's interest? I mean, we say it tried to uh, to 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 commit to everyone's demographic, but did it really? With a budget of 130 million, how much did it even make, Skyler? Well, like you said, uh, with a budget of 130 million, that is a that is a modest at most investment. That's that's a superhero movie on the cheap these days, at least by Marvel standards. Uh, as far as its domestic gross at the time of this recording, uh, it's made back 176.4 million. Uh, it's doing better elsewhere in the world at 218.6 million for what is right now sitting at 395 million. I am sure by the time this episode is released, it will hit 400 million and become a qualified international blockbuster or whatever. This is this is a modest success for Marvel. Really? Well, modest in, in that it's, you know, it didn't usually when we hear about uh the foreign growth, it's 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 way way more and this was only about 40 million more and and climbing. But usually it's it's twice as much. You get a gross of like 200 million domestically and then a gross of like 400 million foreign that's at least what it was for like the captain america and iron man movies in their sequels um but mm -hmm. this one you have 395 where does that rack up against the other uh marvel studios pictures 
I believe that is sitting currently at the second lowest one. We talked in our one of our previous episodes, The Incredible Hulk. That one still is the lowest Marvel earner, but Ant-Man is just above that one at uh, at international blockbuster threshold there. All right, then. So since he's since you mentioned obscure, we're gonna talk about. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna make him less obscure for you listeners. I'm gonna talk about some characters that were in the film and where they came from and such. So so starting off, we have the story. The whole story of Ant Man is as close as you can kind of base it off the comic book that was the premiere of Scott Lang as the second Ant Man, which was Marvel premiere number 47. So this was the the debut comic was Scott Lang had been introduced before but this is when he takes on the suit and he does his first heroic act um, the plot of it is he's of course doing some sort of thieving criminal act to save his dying daughter and that is kind of where this film sort of rests on and that's why I say it's 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 loosely it's not exactly based on this but it's very loosely based on that comic but the first character I want to talk about is Janet Van Dyne she was she was briefly mentioned in the movie. In fact, you you probably didn't even see a face of an actress at all. You just heard a, a word before she she passed away <laughs> or disappeared from the screen. And Janet Van Dyne, uh, the character also known as Wasp, premiered in Tales to Astonish number 44 in 1963, created by Stanley and Jack Kirby. And her original role in the comic book was to be Hank Pym's sidekick or partner and love interest and such uh, wrapped up into a story that involved the death of her father the disappearance of her father she clung on to to hank and helped solve the crime and eventually stayed around as a lab assistant and then eventual wife and after that she developed the role as the well the as the girl in the avengers group she was the only girl and she didn't really have a, a she was the weakest member by far when you're racking up against thor and hulk and iron man but and they grew the character from there and giving uh making her the leader of the team sometimes uh as well as one of the craftiest members of the team they always there's always stories that involve janet coming out on top a big trait about janet is that she has a keen fashion sense. Her career was as a fashion designer, so artists got to have a lot of fun with that character in that they would always give her a new costume for almost every single comic book. It was crazy. You can There's there's this wonderful painting, or this wonderful drawing that featured all the Avengers, all the Avengers members, and on, uh, on the border of it, they have Wasp, but in every single different outfit, she is featured in. Uh, it's a for the Avengers 25th anniversary, I think. Might have been the 50th anniversary. And I don't know what the while the Wasp is like such a she's a she's an old and very established character in the Marvel universe. I don't know what her importance is as a character outside of her relationship with Hank Pym, because Hank Pym eventually deteriorated into domestic violence, and. And so a lot of storylines center on will they, won't they get back together because she divorced him, of course, and there's still that, that lingering love there. And that was, that was the, for the longest time this, this abusive relationship that she kind of kept going back to. And we don't really get to um, – at least I don't – I've never really read a comic book where, where Janet is – stands for something outside of uh, – I suppose getting out of an abusive relationship can be enough on its own um, as something to stand for. Uh, from what I know of the Wasp, I think the two characteristics that kind of you know define that character's uh, history is uh, moving on from an abusive relationship and actually leading the Avengers from time to time, which no small task. Um, so next up, I have Cassie Lang. And she, of course, uh, premiered in the same uh, book as Scott, or as Scott Lang Ant-Man, Marvel premiere number 47, which came out in 1979 by David Michelin and John Byrne. And it wasn't until uh, 30 years later that she fell into her role as the character Stature, where she took up the mantle of the shrinking and growing character in Young Avengers in 2006. 
Uh, but originally she was, you know, uh, Scott's daughter, and she had a heart condition, which prompts Scott, a mechanical engineer, to realize that, like, he can't, as a mechanical engineer, he can do nothing to save his daughter. So he actually becomes a thief, and he steals the Ant-Man suit in order to kidnap a doctor, a very renowned cardiologist, who can who can save his daughter. And very much like in the movie, he's he's stealing stuff. He's not stealing a person, but to do it, and it's all because to to prove that he can be a good father. And eventually, uh, after even though Cassie Cassie is is treated again as with her relationship with her father, she eventually comes into her own role um, by getting her own size changing powers and becoming a a full fledged member of the Young Avengers. Uh, the next character I have is Hope Van Dyne, or she's loosely based on Hope Pym. And this character premiered in Avengers Next, number 7 in 1999 by Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends. And there's not a whole lot to say about this, because it it's not in the standard Marvel universe, because you have to understand that about Marvel Comics, is there's multiple universes. And one of those universes is called MC2. And that is where all of the heroes we know of Ant-Man and, and Spider-Man, they all like actually grew up in real time and got old and retired. And now all of their children are the new superheroes. They have all taken up different mantles. And in, in that universe, Cassandra Lang is the current Ant-Man slash Wasp, the Ant Girl. Uh, and this character, Hope Pym, who is the daughter of Hank Pym and Janet Van Dyne becomes a villain because she believes that she should hold the mantle for the next ant person because apparently they can't share. So she becomes an evil character known as the Red Queen and she fights Cassie Lang until uh, you know she gets beat up. <laughs> oh, it's also lame is her team that she calls that goes against the the new Avengers which the A next team she calls them the Re-Avengers. Mmm. Very clever. Uh, boo. So, uh, yeah, I'm not giving you any points for that, Tom DeFalco. Uh, and f- and how we get to the most confusing character in the film, Darren Cross, a.k.a. Yellow Jacket, who was the main antagonist and first villain of Scott Lang, Ant-Man. So he came about in that, uh, that Marvel premiere comic book, along with everyone else. And it's very similar to the film in that he's also a tech company CEO, but his kick is that he has a rare heart condition. And stay with me here, because this requ- his rare heart condition requires him to have a special nucleo-organic pacemaker. All right, that's fine. But what I love about writers is this pacemaker gives him superpowers. That's only something you can think of in a comic book, is this experimental pacemaker. It it gives him like like Hulk kind of capabilities. He sort of he gets he gets bigger and pinkish and super strength. And the the fallback of this is that it tires out his heart too fast. Go figure. You're using a pacemaker, and he needs to get a heart transplant. So he he threatens the same cardiologist that. Scott Lang is going after. So Scott's like, no, 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 you need to help my daughter because I have a, a I'm not threatening you. I need it. <laughs> Save a little girl instead of this douchebag Hulk we have here with a super special pacemaker. I don't know why they chose in the film to go with the yellow jacket route in that they gave him the yellow jacket suit uh, because yellow jacket in the comic books is is Hank Pym during those times when Hank has a personality crisis or an identity crisis, uh, and he, he, he sort of – his mental state debilitates, and he gains the persona of Yellow Jacket. So it's, it's got villainous histories, but it's not attached to Darren Cross in any way. So <laughs> to, uh, to answer your question on why they uh, did it for the movie, because when in doubt, as two of the Iron Man movies and The Incredible Hulk have taught us, Make the villain just a bigger, badder version of the hero. It's it's that Marvel method, man. It's so transparent, it hurts. 
Well, it's, it's that it, Marvel method. <laughs> yeah. Um. Uh. Not to. Dis- I, we kind of have to distinguish here because there's a there's actual a thing when they were writing comic books back in the the 60s. Actually, the Marvel method created by Stan Lee, where he would just write plot outlines and then the artist would draw the whole story and then he would fill in the script after that. That was the original Marvel method. We have the Marvel Studios method. Marvel Studios method. Yeah, all these tropes of, you know, lame villains. Um, The villains are just copycats. And that's, you know, that's when when comic books started coming out, uh, when superhero comic books got their revitalization in the Silver Age, that's what a lot of the villains were at first, too, is they were just bigger, badder versions of the hero. Um, Abomination was is was made for specifically that reason because you know you could draw something exciting that way um, because they were they were fighting on the same level it didn't challenge the artist too much or the writer to think of anything complex you had to make a book and sell it and this is the same thing because you're making a movie and selling it it's the same process 50 years later oh genius right i mean it's it it's not fair to just pin it right on Marvel Studios because at the same time, you've got your Venoms, you've got your Sabretooth, Lady Deathstrike, whatever. The comic books have an established history of the villain is just the same as the hero. And it just so happens that the movie studios run out of ideas and just do that. Yeah, it's a, the, the villain is just, if the hero decided to become villainous, that's what he would look like. Yep. Uh, the, the, the next character I have is Scott Lang, and Scott Lang's first appearance was as a civilian was in Avengers 181 in 1979, and they very they really they really grasped Scott Lang's history in the film because in the comic book he was an out of work uh, mechanical engineer who was in jail for being a thief, and his first job out of jail was designing a new security system for the Avengers mansion. Not working at Basket and Robbins, but you know, can't win them all. Uh, and he's known as the funnier Ant Man. After Hank Pym commits domestic abuse, uh, <laughs> and, you know, it's really hard to recover from that as a character. So they just sort of replace him with with this w- wittier, more comical guy, Scott Lang. Also, in, who instead of you know. Hank Pym went down the track, the, the very interesting storyline of, of, of domestic violence. Uh, Scott Lang wants a family. He wants his family super bad, but he can't have them because of his life. So it, it creates a much more um, poignant emotional appeal. And that was kind of the only moments in the film where you actually felt for the character. It's a very strong premise, honestly. What uh, Around what decade did the whole... Uh, him domestic abuse thing and switch to Scott Lang happened. Was it the 70s or was it the 80s? Where 1980s. 1980s? Wow. That's, that's really interesting because the 70s and 80s are really different uh, as far as film media and this kind of ties in with it because as far as film goes, 70s are known for complex, uh, cerebral kind of movies from the likes of Francis Ford Coppola, Martin Scorsese, all that stuff. Around the 80s, things take a turn from the more fun, poppy, Spielberg, uh, Star Wars, you know, don't think too hard about it. I just find it fascinating that Pim goes down this road of, you know, domestic abuse, uh, just really dark stuff. And then we get Scott Lang, who's more wholesome, uh, kind of delivering on that kind of uh, family vibe to it that more mm-hmm. people can uh, get behind. Yeah, so the the storyline that involved the Hank Pym domestic abuse uh, was in 1981 and Scott Lang first appeared as becoming the second Ant-Man in 1979. So I think they were actually setting it up. It wasn't a response or reaction to anything. I think they were like, we want to ditch Hank Pym because we want to take him down some dark roads. Uh, so we've got to, we've got to, and we like to keep this character in the pantheon as well. So we're gonna, we're gonna make a new persona. He's got a big mask on, so nobody really notices. Uh, um, so that brings us to the last character to premiere in the film, and that is Hank Pym, who made his first debut in Tales to Astonish, number twenty-seven, 
1962 by Jack Kirby, Stan Lee, and Larry Lieber in the comic book titled The Man in the Ant Hill, where he's just a scientist who discovers that he can shrink. He's, he's found a shrinking formula, and so he shrinks, and he deals with ants. And it was supposed to be a one-shot, but then they eventually developed him into a superhero. So he's, he's this... Originally, it was... Hank Pym had created these things that he was calling Pym particles, and they could adjust your mass. They could shrink you and compact your mass so that you would you know, have, still have the relative strength of a human while being the size of an ant. And originally, you had to inhale this gas. You had to inhale the Pym particles. Eventually, it became like a, a liquid injection, and then, and then, of course, you would just press a button, um, and you would shrink to make things much more simple. And then eventually, Pym particles became the Marvel Universe equivalent of just anything that involved size changing. And Hank Pym has had kind of a rough run. He is a, a dude of many masks in that he has held multiple identities. Uh, he was first Ant-Man because he could shrink and talk to ants, and then he became Giant-Man because he could grow, and then he became Goliath because he got stuck at like 12, 15 feet tall, and then he became Yellow Jacket because he deteriorated into d some poor mental state of health, and then he became... Wasp after his ex-wife died, and then he became just Hank Pym scientist because he really needs to figure his shit out. Was there any history in the Marvel Universe, comics-wise, of the stuff they pulled with the movie where the Pym particles cause mental instability with prolonged exposure? There was one line in the movie where they were like, oh, that's just the Pym particles making you crazy, Darren. And it was out of nowhere. It was said by Evangeline, by Hope Van Dyne, Evangeline Lilly's character. And, like, was she saying that as a distraction, or was that a real thing? No, there was a line earlier in the movie where I think uh, her and Michael Douglas were talking about how the side effects of Pym Particles are actually, you know, cause that. So it it was set up briefly before that line, and then... But poorly. <laughs> but poorly. <laughs> to uh, account for a villain who was just a mustache twirler for the sake of being a mustache. He was he was he was eviler than like cartoonishly comic book evil. Right, exactly. I mean, Corey Stoll is a really good actor. I like him in House of Cards, but uh, unfortunately, the role is just kind of. Yeah, not much to work with. Um, so so yeah. But I'm getting sidetracked. No, you're, it's good. Uh, so Hank Pym has done a lot of bad things in his life, such as he was the character that accidentally created the Ultron AI robot, and and because of that, you know, it put him in a bad light with the Avengers. So he concocted this scenario where these robots would invade an area, and the Avengers wouldn't be able to handle it, and only he had the trigger, the kill switch, and it would look like he came to save the day. Da 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 da. He's like um, Syndrome. From the Incredibles. Yeah. It's, yeah, it was exactly the plot of Syndrome, except Janet found out, and she's like, Hank, you can't do this. This is really unethical. You shouldn't create this scenario, because what if something goes wrong? Spoilers, it does. And he's like, shut up, woman, and he backhands her. That is the, the famous trigger moment of when that relationship just went downhill, and Hank Pym took a deep turn for the worst as a character because he is he is just this you have to remember the core of of ant-man is a person who has to prove that they are useful because they can shrink and talk to ants i think that has to do something with your personality to accept that there's a, a lot of stuff i read there's a deep inferiority complex running through ant-man and that uh especially since that moment has been uh, capitalized upon many times. Well, that's what makes him an interesting character, but that's all I have for comic book. There's a lot, because Ant-Man's got so much history, and he's, he's, he's actually a really fun character, but nobody knows anything about him, because he's Ant-Man. Uh, so, Skylar, why don't you hit us up with some music? Ba -ba 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 oh, and music for Ant-Man, composed this time around by Christoph Beck. Uh, fun fact, it was originally supposed to be written by uh, Stephen Price, who is known for his score for Gravity, which he won the Oscar for, I believe, two years ago. Um, but 
uh, Beck took over when uh, Edgar Wright and Stephen Price departed. I do recall a couple months ago when we were having our Red Losers episode, we talked a little bit about uh, Beck and his sound for that movie, and I said something along the lines of, boy, I really hope the music for Ant-Man kind of echoes this and sounds even as much as fun as this music does. And uh, spoiler alert, it does. It's a very fun soundtrack, I feel like. Um, uh, Beck really plays up the fact that not only is this a superhero movie, uh, it's also a heist comedy, too. So you get these fun instrumentals, like you get the bongos going, trap set, all these groovy beats in the background. But uh, first and foremost, he comes up with a theme for Ant-Man that's very symphonic and traditional and uh, uh, catchy nonetheless. So let's take a look at uh, theme from Ant-Man. That's a that's a fun little little jaunty tune. Doo, doo, doo. It's <laughs> I'm not gonna lie in, in in like man I think is it is it just that a lot of scores sound the same or is it just Marvel movie scores tend to have the same sort of horn brass structure? It just sounds like the same brass sound, a very similar brass sound is coming out of every film since like Captain America. Yeah, I would say that uh, Marvel movies have a tendency to kind of embrace the same sort of non-committal sound that just yada yada. But Ant-Man embraces more of its themes, kind of fun instrumentations, all that stuff that really distinguishes it from, especially the last, uh, let's say, five uh, Marvel movies. None more so, I think, than the next two tracks. First one, which is just so fun, it's the track I'll Call Him Antony uh, during Ant-Man's training montage. And holy crap, is this a groovy tune. Because <laughs> when you get the the bass part of the piano and these bass lines going, it's just so infectiously fun. Let's take a listen. sounds like a donkey kong level soundtrack it's it's just super grooving and i remember during the film when this uh, mu- music kicked in it's like you know what they're actually doing something unique here and i gotta give them props for this because this is this is a musical setup you just don't hear enough these days in uh, movies and i really dug it even more so than that was the uh track scott surfs on ants which uh, also continues, you know, those uh, those same kind of sounds you attribute with heist comedies, but also kind of modulates them into that surf sound that just really works for the parts of the movie they're going for. Let's take a listen.
what what is that? Oh man, that is a that is a that is a is a jump in tune. Holy cow! What is that sound that's going up and down though? That like that sounds like the Incredibles. Yeah. But yeah, what is that whistle sound they, kind of thing? I, I think it's just trumpets going. However, you want to <laughs> uh, make that sound. Good trumpet player. Uh, absolutely, you know, just getting the utilizing that big band sound. That uh, a good score is really an underlying uh, aspect. I think people, most people, take for granted. And this one really not only uh, exists as good music. I think it just elevates the music it, movie itself enough. Um, for this last tune, uh, Tales to Astonish, which is a little wink and nod, uh, Darren Cross uh, makes mention of it in the movie, and that's where uh, the character originally had in his comic, first comic book appearance. Beck takes a page out of Brian Tyler's book for Iron Man 3, in which case the end credits music was kind of you know, this 70s throwback sound to poppy uh, TV. This one's kind of this throwback sound to old sci-fi Saturday morning cartoon kind of sound. Got these weird theremin guitars, things going on. And it utilizes the Ant-Man sound in a way that's uh, really tongue-in-cheek. So let's take a listen. Not gonna lie, for like the first ten seconds of that, I was going, "Hmm, are you sure you're thinking of '80s sci-fi or old sci-fi?" Because I'm hearing mariachi. All I'm hearing is mariachi, and then laser gun effects. Pew pew pew. pew. Oh yeah. Well, specifically the opening of the track um, kind of has that sci-fi sound, but you wouldn't know it since I didn't pick out that part of it so much as the uh, the mariachi sound, which also plays a uh, factor in the movie. Yeah. Oh, fun fact also, Christoph Beck was the, I believe, was the musical director for the Buffy the Vampire Slayer musical episode Once More with Feeween. Really? So he has an in with both Joss Whedon and the Whedonites, and he also has an in with uh, Disney because he was the composer for Frozen. So. Good for, whoa, whoa, what? What? Oh, he was the composer? I was going to say, like, I thought those songs were written by that that very charming couple. I forget their names. Lopez. Yeah, that's the music for Ant-Man. Uh, check What'd out for a bit. Um, oh, we're going to no. move on to science. So, Ben, tell me, how are you? I'm pretty good. That's great. All right, good. So I just drank a, the Rover Truck Oatmeal Stout by Top and Goliath Brewing, and I feel great. How are you? Please send it. Good. Please send us free beer. Uh, <laughs> so Ben, let's 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 cover the obvious topic first. Then, yep. talk to me about shrinking in real world capabilities of taking an object of mass and making it smaller. So you can't create or destroy mass. That's the law of conservation of mass. So you can only make things smaller by pushing particles closer together, and if you push particles too close together, they will just fuse together, and you get a fusion reaction. So, as it's described in the movie, doesn't happen. Sorry about that. You tell me that there's so, no way a person can shrink and maintain the relative strength of an ant? Well, I'm saying that, like... Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I'm also saying that in, like, the end of the movie, when he goes down to the quantum realm... And he's, like, super tiny, and he transcends human understanding of space and time. Yeah, he would just, like, all his atoms would fuse together. There'd be a gamma ray burst, and 
it's Marvel, so probably one of the ants around him would be super-powered. So when Darren Cross turns both people and poor bleeding lambs into little piles of goop, is that more along the lines of what might actually happen? Probably, yeah. I'm guessing so. <laughs> that's horrible. What? Okay. I don't. I don't know why he had to do a lamb. You yeah, know? that's what I was about to say. Like, what's like, with superhero movies not using mice? Like actual scientists use mice. That yeah. So unnecessary and just like, okay, I feel really bad for this this poor dumb animal, and I know that's the point, but come on, movie. Also, also a really, really freaking bland use of the term sacrificial lamb. Come on. Yeah. I mean, the point of that was to show how evil What's-His-Face is. David Cross. Darren. Um, (laughs) David Cross from Arrested Development in that one episode of Community. Um, (laughs) Darren Cross. The point of that scene was to show how evil Darren Cross was because he didn't care that he was blowing up a lamb. And lambs are easier to sympathize with than mice. So, but yeah. Yeah, I was ticked off by that. So, so next up, I want to talk about uh, talking to ants or communicating with insects. Yeah. How does, how does that work? So the way ants communicate with each other is through pheromones, which are just chemicals that smell really strongly to them. And then they, like, rub their greases, their greasy pheromone oils on each other. And they're like, hey, it's me. They're like, oh, okay, <laughs> you're good. Come on in. Or they'll be like hey, I just laid a trail of greasy pheromone juice, and the food's in that direction. Follow my greasy pheromone trail. But that's about it. We can't, They don't have language. You know, um, well, okay, so, so I mean, you know, I've heard of this, actually, in that if you coat an ant with a specific type of grease that is different than other ants can recognize, they or you take away all that ant-specific grease, ants literally can't see that other ant at all. Like, they don't recognize, and they'll just, like, start yeah. running into it. Because pheromones um, matter, man. If that's the only way you can communicate is by smelling each other's secretions, then, like, if you're covered in the wrong secretions, people will be like, man, that dude smells weird. Let's just <laughs> pretend he's not there. Also, you know? I read that, yeah, yeah. Also, I read that uh, ants don't actually have, like, they, they, they form colonies, right? But they don't have any sort of like alpha male status. There's the, there's the queen which they protect, but they don't they don't follow orders from anyone. They yeah. just sort of communicate instinctually. Yeah. yeah, it's 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 literally a hive mind. Like the queen is called the queen, but and like she gets protected, but that's just because she's like giving birth all the time. So it's like a reproductive thing, but she's not giving orders. There's no like central command. It's just it's literally a hive mind if you think about it. Yeah, because like, because there's no like, oh, you respected this ant because it's stronger than that ant. Uh, there's no pack mentality in any way. They're just like, we're building something because it helps us survive. They're so simplistic in their uh, in their survival instincts. Yeah, it's funny because there was an uh, article, I believe it was on IGN, shortly after the movie came out, about the one ant that got hit with the uh, the growing disc or whatnot and became, you know, just this giant ant hanging around Scott Lang's house about how it would, like, die a horrible death because it couldn't be part of the ant hive mind anymore, you know? It it couldn't get back to its its people or whatnot, and I was like... Well, actually, the reason the giant ant would die is because it would be crushed under its own weight. <laughs> yeah, that too. Oh, that's it much just, better. That's so just, much better. It would break itself. Alright, speaking of the giant ant, let's talk about Ant facts. Like, we can't say the word ant enough in this podcast. Uh, ben, I want ant you to... Facts. Ant facts. I want you to discuss with me the how much did Ant-Man get right in its ability to classify ants and their what they can do. Because they used, what, four types of ants in the movie? <sighs> yep. Yeah. So, there are carpenter ants, which are pretty well known. They fly. They do fly. Actually, a lot of ants can fly. That's not uncommon at all. Well, isn't, um, it, isn't it only females, though? Correct, yeah. So there there are male ants, but they only live long enough to uh, fertilize an egg, basically. They never leave the colony. Um, not usually. So, there you go. 
Oh, so like all the ants you see outside making ant hills? Yep. Oh, those are those aren't carpenter ants though, right? Well, all, pretty much all ants are, are that way. Anthony was more like a like a like a Antoinetta <laughs> or an Abigail or something. Uh, Antigale. Antigale. So what was the second type? The fire ants, the ones that have like really spicy bites. Yep. That is basically they are in real life how they are in the movie. Um, they build rafts and float down rivers on piles of each other. They do that. Or or like they'll float around on like yeah. just big humps on pieces of wood down rivers. Um, they have a very strong bite. Their bite is extremely painful. Can't tell if so. sarcasm or no, that's a or shit. truth. No, yeah. I, I'm serious. Oh, Marvel oh. got this one basically 100% right. The 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 fire ants. Oh, wow. Aren't they completely uh, resistant to microwaves too? Uh, nothing is completely you... resistant to microwaves. Yeah, but like I, I I'm pretty sure I've seen videos of fire ants inside of a microwave and they just chill like it's no big deal. Well, I don't know about that. Because microwaves work by exciting water, water molecules, make them vibrate really a lot, and then that's heat. So if fire ants have water in them, then the microwave will excite that water, and it'll get really hot, and they'll boil. So I don't know about that. Do ants need water to survive? Uh, yeah. I, I, I don't know. I'm just asking. I didn't know. Because they're such tiny creatures, and you know, you know yeah. they drown in puddles. And I can't, I can't like imagine I mean, them drinking water. Is the thing. I mean, they, they don't need a lot, but they drink All water. Right. All right, let's go with the third ant then, the crazy ant, the fascinate, most fascinatingest uh, in the yeah. movie, these electrical ants. So, uh, crazy ants in the movie um, were loosely based on uh, what are called tawny crazy ants, which were famous because in real life they were known for basically just shorting out electrical systems in southeast United States because they built their nests inside of electrical boxes, which is a fine place to build a nest if you're if you're an ant. Holy but they don't have the kind of electromagnetic conducting whatever powers that they have in the movie. They just shorted out all these circuits and we got famous because they just ate through the wires while building their nest. So are they electricity resistant no more than any other kind of ant oh okay so yeah they're just another kind of ant and they needed a third type of ant and didn't they put the little electrical packs on those ants to kind of you know augment their supposed electrical bullshit or whatever yeah it's more like they had a third species of ant that they put like a mech suit on to keep, and they just had to be a separate species so they could keep track of it, as opposed to the carpenter and fire ants. All right, then let's go to the final final ant used in bullet ants in the movie. I don't even remember what do they use bullet ants for. I don't recall either. I don't. I just know that that the bullet ant actually its bite is extremely high up on pain scale for stings and bites, like even more so than the fire ant. Yeah, they. Bullet ants—they're known for having an extremely powerful uh, sting. It hurts a lot. I don't think it'll kill you, but it is extremely painful. Uh, so, Ben, any more ant facts or ant man facts? Well, I got some. I got some ant facts. Uh, the longest living ant that is known was 30 years old. Oh my God. Yeah, they're they're some of the longest living insects. Um, insects have two stomachs, or not insects, just ants. Ants have two stomachs. Uh, one, they hold food for themselves. One, they hold food for other ants. So you can have one group of ants go off and forage for food, come back and feed people like working underground in the colony. So it's more efficient. This is absolutely. Oh my gosh! I never. Just looking back at like the past 15 minutes, we have dived deep into the world of ant anatomy, um, or ant anatomy, if you will, and. I am like like these are the most fascinating creatures in 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 the freaking world. Lovely. Ants also sleep way more than you'd think. Um, a study of fire ant sleeping patterns uh, showed that they the average worker sleeps for about a little under five hours per day, and 
queens sleep 9.4 hours per day on average. Carol, how do they get anything so, done? Oh, wait. So the mind. stereotype of the busy, busy ant, like, yeah, they sleep kind of a lot, considering that they're ants. Anyway, um, yeah, I got some other ant facts here, but they're not that fun. All right, then. Uh, so we're all done with science if all the ant facts have been exhausted or at yep. least tapered. And so why don't we why don't we wrap the show up with a couple of fun facts? Anybody got any fun facts do with the Ant Man movie? Ant Man movie facts. Early in the process, actor Patrick Wilson was originally slated to uh, be one of the villains of the film. Uh, Patrick Wilson, you'll remember from. Watchmen, who played uh, Night Owl. Uh, it was never really revealed who his character was supposed to be, but I have a pretty strong hunch, given the uh, visual similarities, that he was going to play the character that Martin Donovan plays, the uh, the S.H.I.E.L.D. agent who ended up uh, being part of HYDRA, who is himself rumored to be part of a possible Ant-Man sequel, since at the end of the movie, spoilers, uh, he does get away with the the new and improved Pym Particles, so... Well, you mean he wasn't going to play Dr. Egghead, Ant-Man's number one nemesis, a scientist with a head the shape of an egg? So you mean they totally ripped off Egg-Foo from Wonder Woman comics, right? Well, Egg-Foo is a little bit of a different animal, because Egg-Foo is an egg. He that's that is he's what just he an is. Egg. Yes, yeah. he's an Sorry. egg with animatronic legs. <laughs> I should have said they ripped off um, Egghead from the old '60s Batman TV series. What? Hold on. Yeah, there's a the '60s Batman TV series. Adam oh West. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Adam okay. West. Sorry. It's the one that was, the movie's based on. I'm thinking of animated for some reason. I was like, it's, what? Super it's like the definitive the Batman movie, man. Yes, I am. I I do. I'm aware of the uh, the Bill Dozier 1966 Batman television show. Um, yeah, masterpiece. Yeah, dude. It's Vincent Price in all his horror classic glory played Egghead, who I guess was just an evil genius with an egghead who made egg related shit or whatever. Pop quiz listeners, which came first, the egghead or the Dr. Egghead? You tell us. <laughs> every every episode we have a weak social media push. <laughs> no. Go to our Reddit, superhero or reddit.com r slash superhero movie club and Yo, uh, step off step off. That is my thing. In the, you didn't the outro. jump on it, because that's where I well, want them to put We haven't the started show. the outro yet. It, you, you should plug it where it's relevant is the thing. Because uh, the the reason – okay, we, you know, our, I don't like how our outro ha, has gotten so scripted um, because then people won't listen to it if it's scripted because it will just okay, go – Fair enough. You right. exhaust me. I'm, I'm sinking. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> so is, does that mean we should we should we should we should put a put a pin in this bad boy? Yeah, I think so. Oh, I just I just got two more concerning the uh, credit sequence teasers and whatnot. First one indicates that Hope Van Dyne is gonna take up the Wasp mantle in an upcoming uh, Marvel movie, probably Infinity War, if anything. Hold on, uh, stop right there. I need to discuss something that is just. I've just remembered because this I remember this was my my emotional beef with this movie is that the entire time Hank Pym is going no hope you can't get in the suit never because your mother died in that suit and like it took hope like 20 years to realize this is why her father didn't want her in the suit um, and it, Scott Lang had to figure it out for her whoopty dingle freaking do. And so you're like, oh, that makes sense. Don't want to endanger my daughter. And then at the end of the film, it has been proven that being in the Ant-Man suit is very dangerous. Scott Lang has proven that. He has almost died. And Darren Cross has died. And he's like, you know what? I think you're ready. And I go, why? What changed? Way to undo the entire moral of the movie. 
movie. Well, just yep. the the you know, one the the second biggest emotional pull of like a father loving his 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 daughter. You know, the first one was Scott Lang and Cassie, and then you have Hank Pym and Hope. Um, and the, and the Cassie one stayed there, and it was very nice and and, and tender and sweet. But the, that one just got undermined in that one scene entirely. Made yeah, so I agree. Off. I didn't think about it at the time, but you're you're 100 percent right. No, you're because it's it's just I to mean, service the fanboys. It it's satisfying as a scene by itself. In the context of the movie, it does a Kung Fu Panda two where. The character's entire journey gets undone by this little snippet at the end. We're oh. co- we're comparing this movie to Kung Fu Panda 2 and a Katy Perry album. There's a lot of oh. associative power with Marvel films. They can yeah. Be put in context but those aren't flattering comparisons, I think. <laughs> it depends on how much you like Kung Fu Panda 2 and Katy Perry. Uh, and what was your second and... snippet? Okay, so the second uh, scene at the end of the credits was that tease from uh, Captain America Civil War, which uh, confirms that, yes, Man- Ant-Man will, in fact, show up in that film. And we've since gotten reports of footage that was shown at D23 of the Disney convention that uh, Ant-Man's going to be part of Captain America's quote-unquote side in the whole thing. So, Okay, good. I'm... I'm really glad you brought up that 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 first mid credit scene because I would have been remiss if we went this whole episode without me getting that beef out because I walked out of that theater fumed just because of it's how close that was in my head of just like oh screw you Marvel and just for that one moment you know that was a good film but God that was some bullshit at the end you assholes oh, all right so we're just gonna I'm gonna sleep on this anger now. So uh, that's going to wrap it up today, guys. Uh, Superhero Movie Club is recorded and produced by Triop Cop Productions. If you like what you hear, please show us your support by subscribing to us on iTunes and giving us a rating. Very simple. You just go to that iTunes page and and you click five stars. You can write a review, a fun little message to us, a nice little in-joke. Um, you can give us a five-star rating, but at the same time, write a most scathing review, and we will laugh, and we will we will quote you. Uh, it doesn't cost you anything to do any of this at all, other than uh, like two minutes of your time. Four at most. Ten if you want to go Nathaniel Hawthorne on us, which is cool. If you want to keep talking about any episode with us, we encourage discussion on our subreddit, reddit.com slash r slash superhero movie club. We want to know any fun facts you have on the movie. SHMC also keeps up an active Twitter feed at SuperheroMC, so follow us and send us your questions, comments, and suggestions, and we'll use them on the air! Exclamation point. <laughs> and, um, and or also, if you tweet us enough, you can do what Twitter Tom did, and I will ask you to be on the show. It doesn't take much technology. It doesn't take a whole lot of planning. But we we love hearing from our fans, and we love putting our fans on the show. And that is definitely a test to – we had Twitter time on twice, and he's definitely going to be on more times than that too. We love that guy. Twitter Tom is the example of how being a super fan of ours will get you – Super cred, if you will. You'll be famous with about a hundred people every single week. Yes, that is that is a hundred percent true. So, but you will be friends with people a hundred miles away from you. It's yeah, but you know what? Friends all the same, and we all talk about superhero movies, and we love it. Uh, poor Twitter Tom is stuck in like rural Ohio, where not a not a, a not a whole lot of nerds in sight. Oh, all right, but that'll do it today then. I'm your host, Michael Maurer, James Skyler Houtsma, and Ben Anderson. And I hope you all have a super week.